0: In his letter to the early believers, James addressed the problems which he observed in the churches scattered throughout the area. His letter was sent to the 12 tribes in the dispersion in verse 1 of chapter 1. This dispersion occurred when the believers were persecuted in Jerusalem and where they were scattered abroad seeking safety. This dispersion is referenced in Acts 8.1. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. I'm not sure why the apostles stayed in Jerusalem when the others fled. Perhaps they stayed in Jerusalem because of what Jesus had stated in Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Uh, The believers who fled Jerusalem took the gospel of Jesus Christ to their new homes, and little bands of believers sprang up in Judea, Samaria, and other places far away from Jerusalem. But the apostles remained in Jerusalem, including James, and the churches from the remote areas, consulted with the Jerusalem church when they needed guidance since the apostles became the leaders of the church after Jesus ascended to heaven. And we think that James rose to the most prominent position in the Jerusalem church. We know from Acts 21 and Galatians 2 that James accepted delegates that came in from the outlying Churches, and he sent out delegates to the outlying churches on official church business. So James had a steady stream of information on the outlying churches, and his letter to the 12 tribes reflected the concerns that he constantly was hearing about. Now, one of those concerns was that he kept hearing that the churches were under trials and persecutions and temptations, That concern was addressed in chapter 1. Another concern that came to the ears of James was that there was prejudice or favoritism or partiality in the church. In particular, he heard that Christians were honoring the rich and dishonoring the poor. And this was utterly opposed to the teaching of Jesus, who was the half-brother of James. Remember... From what we can tell from Scripture, James would have grown up rather poor himself. Jesus had once said in Luke 9, 58, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, presumably, James' concern about prejudice could apply to categories of people other than the rich and the poor. The Bible talks a good bit about the unity between Gentiles and Jews because racial prejudice was and is a concern in the church. Other kinds of discrimination can be present in the church, you know, maybe the educated versus the uneducated, or the married versus the single and widowed. And, uh, but the fact of the matter is, James, James' concern specifically was the way that Christians treated the rich and the, and the way they treated the poor. So our study will center on what James said about the rich and the poor. The passage breaks down fairly easily into two sections. The problem of partiality described and and a solution to the partiality was prescribed by James. Now before we delve into chapter 2, we need to uh, say one thing about a misuse of this chapter. Some people have used James chapter 2 as a way to advance the belief that Everyone in the church is equal. In other words, uh, they use James 2 to claim that wives are not really under the authority of their husbands. Church members are not really under the authority of church leadership. Children really have no obligation to obey parents. They use James' instruction here against partiality as a way to promote a kind of uh, Christian socialism in the church where no one has any authority over anyone else. I always thought there was a great irony about socialistic societies in this matter of equality, because there never has been, ever, a socialist society where everyone was equal. Equal. There's always the party, which acts as leaders, if not dictators and despots. The masses of people were never anything close to equal in a a socialistic society, but that's a different story that we're not going to get into today. Now, James was the highest-ranking leader in the church, and he never indicated that leadership really didn't matter because we're all equal. We're equally forgiven, we're equally cherished and loved by God, we're Equal value in God's eyes, I think we could say, but in no way did James undo the God ordained uh, structures within Christianity or recognized by Christianity, such as the government, uh, the structure in the family, the structure in the church. But he did say that in the church there must not be partiality on the basis of wealth. Right now, verse one: My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. In your practice of the Christian faith, don't be partial based on how much money a person has, or what color their skin is, or how educated they are. Now, James gave weight to his command when he called Jesus the Lord of glories. This mistreatment of the poor, it's not just my pet peeve, James said. This is a Lord of glory is watching you. The supreme ruler, the Lord lives in pure light. He's forever removed from moral stain. And one of his demands is that we have no partiality. And the Lord of glory during his ministry on earth loved the poor, didn't he? Jesus He loved the poor and the needy. He called his disciples primarily from among the poor. And Jesus never seemed to be impressed or dazzled by anybody's wealth. I tried to think of any time in scripture that Jesus seemed dazzled by somebody's wealth or position. I couldn't think of any, and I don't think you can think of any either. If the Lord of glory didn't treat people with partiality because of their wealth, we shouldn't either. And the example that he gave is this example of a church assembly. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here at a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. So this is the example that James used to help convince the people that they had a problem with partiality. Now in the church of 2020 in America, it seems to me that spotlight would fall on the elders and door greeters in many churches. I don't know how visitors in the early church were welcomed or greeted or seated, but there was apparently a custom that favored the rich getting the, the better seats. It might be hard for us to imagine, since we would never consider preferential seating in church, but it was baked into their culture a little bit more than ours. I remember Jesus had said about the scribes and the Pharisees, They loved the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues. Matthew 23, 6. It was not unusual for the front seats, so to speak, to be saved for the honored religious leaders. But now the the Christians, uh, in their early meetings, adopted that custom of uh, preferential seating for the rich. And the custom of preferential seating was probably just the tip of the iceberg in in regard to their preferential treatment for the rich. I'm sure the believers cozied up to the rich people in in many other ways. The motivation behind the preferential treatment, it's it's very apparent. Partiality toward the rich was not concern for the rich person's soul, it was concern for the material benefit that might be gained by friendship with a rich person. Now, from that standpoint, a person might say that the prefer- preferential treatment given to the rich person is degrading to the rich person. You know, I, your soul aside, you know what I care about is your money and how it can benefit my situation. Now, the evil in this kind of partiality, uh, he referred to as evil judging. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, mark this well. The problem was not judging. The problem was judging with evil thoughts. It's popular these days for people to go around saying, don't judge, don't judge. Bible says, judge not. Now, the meaning of that goes something like this. I can do anything I want. You have no right to say whether my behavior is right or wrong. Whatever my sexual preferences are, you have to accept them, or you're judging. Whatever my opinion about abortion is, you have to, you have to accept it. You can't confront me about it because you can't judge. It's, it's shallow reasoning and easily debunked when when you think, for example, that the Bible also commands churches to discipline sinners even to the point where the sinner is removed from fellowship. The Bible calls for believers to discern, calls for us to judge between right and wrong, calls for us to confront sin. So the problem is not in the judging. The problem is in the judging with evil thoughts. The believers made wealth their standard for judging people. And this standard was evil because it created a caste system sort of in the church, a kind of, uh, you know, social stratification. You're valuable because you have money. You, not not so much. This kind of thinking contradicts biblical teaching that we're all one in Christ. There's no difference in value based on wealth. The value of any Christian is his or her soul and the fact that they are loved and treasured by God, that they're rich in faith. We love and value each other because we're knit together in the body of Christ by the common forgiveness that we have experienced. A person's wealth and and their education, their physical appearance, their intelligence, their race, their age, should have no bearing whatsoever on the way that they are accepted and, and cherished in the church. While very few churches today would would seek people according to wealth, it's beyond doubt that churches do pursue wealthy persons, perhaps more so than the poor. And you and I have to ask ourselves, if we would have have any kind of different reaction to a a wealthy, beautiful, with-it-looking family that would walk into our church compared to, let's say, an old man dressed in ragged clothes and somewhat unkempt and not very attractive? Would there be any kind of different response on, on our behalf? I think it's possible that we might. Dishonoring God's chosen is part of the evil partiality. verses 5 and 6. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. This is really the crux of the evil in judging according to wealth. It's insulting. It's, it's dishonoring. It's, it's uh, dehumanizing. It's, it's hateful to the poor. You would be welcome here if you had more to offer, but you really don't have much to offer. Thanks for visiting. Now, the poor expect this kind of treatment in the world when they're around unsaved people. Uh, Listen to what Solomon said about the reality of life as a poor man. This is Proverbs 19, verses 4 and 7. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. All the poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but he does not have them. Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. All the poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but... You can't draw them in. That is the reality for poor people. Few people care about them. No one is rushing to be their friends. They're used to slights. They're used to disdain. They try to seek out friendships. But people are really not all that interested in friendship with them. But one day... The poor man meets Jesus. Like the gathering demoniac. Do you remember that outcast? No home other than the tombs. He had no friends. He was no value to society. Everybody ever waited him until Jesus came. And when Jesus came, Jesus took time to talk to him. He asked him his name. What is your name? Even though the devils wouldn't allow him to say his real name, he said Legion. My name's Legion because there were so many devils. But Jesus delivered him from the devils and the, the man was saved. He was, he was in his right mind. He was dressed properly and he, he became a disciple of Jesus. He wanted to go with Jesus, but Jesus said, no, your job is to, your job is to stay here and testify about me in your town and in the area that, that, that you're from. Now, should this man be placed in the uh, bottom of the social structure in the church? He had no money. How about the beggars and the lepers that, that trusted in Jesus? Should they be second class citizens because they don't have money? You see, when the poor come to saving faith in, in Jesus are coming out of a world where they're dishonored and and they're ignored, and when they enter the fellowship of believers, we, we cannot continue to treat them as second-class citizens. We must not dishonor those who God has called and chosen. God's made them rich in faith. But if we're not careful, we, we won't care about their richness in faith. We'll, we'll, we'll care about their financial deficits. God forbid that that we would treat the poor in that way. But also it honors the oppressors, according to James, verses 6 and 7. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Now in verses 6 and 7, we have to understand that James made a transition that that he didn't announce. Back in verse 2, he talked about... uh, a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly. So I think we assume that this man was was a believer. He was coming to the assembly to be with the believers. In verses six and seven, James transitioned to talking about rich people that that are not saved. There's no way that we can say from the Bible that that rich people are inherently bad. There, There are many wonderful and wealthy believers. As James is not talking about them. He's making the point that that people in the church are are judging people strictly based on their wealth. And that's foolhardy. No one deserves honor just because they're rich. Should we honor El Chapo Guzman, the Mexican warlord because he's rich? Should we honor Kim Jong Un because he's rich? Uh, in the days of James, uh, believers were often persecuted more so than believers here in America today and the, the persecution that was inflicted on them was most often uh, came at the hands of of rich people. It was the rich that had the means to confiscate land It was the rich that had the money to hire attorneys to pay off judges and make decisions that were against believers and and dragged innocent people into into court. It was rich people who had a platform to malign the name of Jesus. If you want to be honest, the same is true in society today. Think about who in society maligns the name of Jesus and maligns the name of believers. It's people in in positions allowed by wealth and the uh, privileges that come with it. The entertainment industry constantly putting out movies and and, and materials that, that portray Christianity in a bad light. Professors in academia adamant about destroying the faith of young people. Media personalities Poor, hostile to the gospel. Well, James 2,000 years ago said, beware the rich people. They're the ones that blaspheme the name of Jesus. It still rings true today. It's a very great evil to dishonor the poor because they're poor. It's also an evil to honor the rich just because they're rich. So there was a significant problem regarding believers' attitudes and behaviors toward rich people and their attitude and behavior toward poor people. For every problem in the church, there is a solution. In the kingdom of Christ, there are no problems without solutions, as long as God remains omnipotent. And James advanced a solution, which he talked about in verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So the solution to partiality is to apply the golden rule. Now, if you look at the wording of verse 8 in particular, look at that word really there. If you really fulfill the royal law, how does the, how does the use of really strike you there? Do you think it sounds a little skeptical? If you were really fulfilling the royal law and loving your neighbors yourself, we wouldn't have this issue with partiality. That's how, that's how it comes across to me. Now, it may be that the believers thought that they were doing well in this matter of loving their neighbors, but James said, no, you're not. James called the golden rule the royal law. It's the royal law because it is a command that comes from the king, King Jesus. He said in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind first great commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the problem the problem with partiality in the early church happened because they disobeyed the commandment of God. And the correction needed was to begin to obey the command of God to love their neighbors as much as they loved themselves. Now, some commands in the Bible uh, were not going to be able to obey uh Completely, while while we have our sin nature, some of the commands of God, we maybe are able to obey. An example, maybe the eighth commandment: "Thou shalt not steal." So I believe that some people uh, can and, and maybe have arrived at the point where they no longer steal. Now, underneath underneath the problem of theft is this whole matter of coveting. They may never completely resolve the matter of coveting, but in the matter of the behavior of theft, some Christians may have conquered that. Now, the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself, they're ideals as well as commands. They're commandments and we're responsible to obey them, but we'll not get to the point in this life where we love God as we should, and we're not going to get to the point where we consistently love others as we should either, but true believers make progress. True believers make progress toward loving their neighbor. Now, according to verse 9, partiality is a sin because it fails. It fails the golden rule. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law, by that royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, that law convicts you of your sin. When the believers tripped over themselves to show deference to rich people, they dishonored poor people in the process. They weren't tripping over themselves to honor the poor. And maybe these partial people, prejudicial people in the New Testament church, maybe they also sinned against the rich because they sent that unspoken message. The reason that you're important to us is not because of your soul. It's because of your money. Now, we have an interesting statement in verse 10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point he is guilty of all in King James' language. I look at this statement of james and and I wonder why it's here in in, in this discussion now we know that we know that statement is true you don't have to break every bible command to be guilty before God in fact it's very unlikely that you will ever will break every command in the Bible because some sins just don't appeal to you. So why would you break it? I I happen to believe that using methamphetamine is a sin. I find the idea of, of using meth something that's detestable to me, so I'll probably never be guilty of that particular sin. Well, let's consider why James put this statement here in the midst of this discussion. Now, James was an insightful man. He understood human human nature through the Holy Spirit, but also through many years of observing human behavior. And James, I think, anticipated that his readers would have a certain response to his accusation of breaking the golden rule he anticipated that they would respond in this way. Oh, yes, I am loving my neighbor as myself. It was out of love that I gave that wealthy man the good seed. You know, that's what I would have preferred if I had been walking into the church or the synagogue on that morning. And it seems to me that James' response was something along the lines of this. Well, let me grant it to you. Let me grant it to you that it was love for that rich man that that motivated your behavior toward that man. That does not make you innocent of dishonoring that poor man. We can't please God by selective obedience. We do not please God when we love the rich or when we love the young and, and, and we love the attractive. We please God when we love the rich and the poor, the attractive and the plain. We please God when we love our neighbor. And per the parable of the Good Samaritan, our neighbor is any person with whom we have dealings in this life. Anyone that comes across my path in life, that's my neighbor. I can't select which neighbor I'm going to love and which I'm going to ignore. We we can't select which commands of God we, we are going to obey and which which we're going to 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 ignore. But I warn you that that will be our tendency. My tendency is going to be uh, to say uh, something along these lines: well, "I just don't understand. I don't understand this appeal to you know being transgender. I think that's I think that's awful. I would never do that." But in so being, I'm patting myself on the back for having avoided the sin that, that never appealed to me in the first place. And, and it allows me in some way to avoid thinking about the sins that are real in my life, the bitterness, the, you know, the, the, the lust, the uh, greed that is in my own heart. Because I constantly point out the sins I'm not guilty of. James said, It's not good enough to claim your love for the wealthy. You have to follow the royal law, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everybody. And as an illustration of the principle that we must obey the entire law of God, James introduced the matter of murder and adultery in verse 11. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now, this is not a passage, James 2, is not a passage about adultery and murder. Both are sin, and James confirms that. And this point is not to address adultery and murder here. The point of verse 11 is to... It is to challenge anyone who wants to boast about their obedience in one area as a defense against their disobedience in another area. So my obedience in, in many areas, many, many areas, let's say even 500 areas. My obedience in 500 areas can never counterbalance my disobedience in one area over here. God is holy. His holiness does not measure good works against bad works. Uh, God God will never say, oh, you know, this person stacked up so many good works over here that I think I'll ignore his disobedience. The only way that we can be perfect, and God, God demands perfection, The only way that we can be perfect is through the perfection that Jesus gave to us when he absorbed all of our sins on the cross. And and at the same time, his righteousness was applied to my life and and applied to your life. And so we're justified by the blood of Jesus. When, When I trusted Jesus as Savior, I was declared righteous, I was no longer guilty of the sins that I committed. But nevertheless, every believer is responsible to become more and more like Christ, more and more righteous in their daily life, and that's the process of sanctification, which we've talked about recently. Now, this was the, the, the hope of James in this passage. He, he wanted people to get on with the task of loving everyone, We wanted people to be gracious and kind and courteous and welcoming to the rich and the poor. That leaves us with verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, if we break that down into parts, the first part is so speak and so act. Well, that's easy to understand. James wants us to speak and act in accordance with the royal law that says you must love all your neighbors regardless of age, race, education, wealth, social status, and so forth. Uh, second part of verse 12, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, the, the law of liberty, or is there other laws? yes. There is another kind of law that people could be judged by. James sent his letter to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. They were Jewish people, mostly. In the very, very earliest part of the church, very, very many of them were Jewish before Paul went out as a missionary and invited many Gentiles. And so most of the believers that James wrote to were Jewish and and they were very familiar with the Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was not a law of liberty. The Old Testament law condemned people because people could never obey it. Paul said, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's Romans 3.20. In other words, it's impossible. It's impossible to keep the law. No one will ever make it to heaven by working really hard to obey the law. The purpose of the law was to show people that they were sinners and that they needed a savior. Now, verse 12 is referencing the difference really between law and grace, two different laws, the Old Testament law, the New Testament law, or the, although, of course, the Old Testament always was introducing the law of grace, they just didn't get all the way there until Christ came. But the Jewish people grew up under the teaching of the Old Testament law given on Mount Sinai. That that law was perfect. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. It reflected God's character. There was no defect in the Old Testament law whatsoever, except nobody could follow it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But now James was speaking to New Testament believers, uh, who had repented of their sin, they trusted in Jesus. The law of grace or the law of liberty, as it's called here in verse 12, freed the people from that Old Testament law whose consequences was death. The Old Testament law left people without a means of salvation. Everybody was under wrath and judgment of God because everyone failed to keep the Old Testament law. So the Old Testament law in and of itself, it was a system of bondage. There's no way to please God. No way that anybody was able to please God. But the Old Testament did teach about a coming Savior. Every time a lamb was offered as a sacrifice, that the hope of that coming Savior was remembered. Yeah, there's a Savior coming one day. He will be a sacrifice for your sins. You'll be saved through this, through this coming Savior. Put your trust in that coming Savior. The Old Testament saints were saved by trusting in Jesus Christ who had not yet come. New Testaments, New Testament saints are saved by trusting in Jesus Christ who already came, already died, already has been resurrected and ascended to heaven. The payment for sin is now made. And believers are now liberated from the penalty of of disobeying the law. They were now under grace. Okay, so how should people like you and I who are living under grace now, we are living under liberty, how should we live? You've been forgiven. You will not face the wrath of God on Judgment Day, so how are you going to go out and live today now well, some people say well you know now that my sins are forgiven anyway I, you know i'm free to indulge in what i want to do my sins are forgiven i can live however i want and in the end god will happily accept me into heaven james said no to that chapter 2 verse 17 which will probably get to next week faith by itself if it does not have works is dead it's dead the way that believers are supposed to live in new testament times is through the power of the holy spirit that is enabling them to live their lives increasingly in a way that pleases god and the Holy Spirit enables you to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what you need, isn't it? Don't you need help to love that difficult person? You're not very successful at loving that difficult person on your own. That's what James is saying in verse 12. We're redeemed. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. So let's begin, to, let's begin living a life that shows that Holy Spirit's activity in us. By loving not, not just the rich, but loving the poor and loving the difficult and, and loving the mean-spirited and uh, loving the takers that never give back anything to you. That's the Holy Spirit's work in you. When you can love that people, that kind of people, it doesn't mean much when you can show favoritism to a rich person who in your life is difficult to love. Pray that the Holy Spirit will give you the strength and the wisdom to love that that person. God has enabled you to do that through the Holy Spirit. So verse 12 reminds us that we're living under liberty, not under condemnation. You're no longer condemned to exhaust yourself, trying to obey all that Old Testament law, only in the end to find that you inevitably fail, repeatedly, over and over and over again. Instead, you're forgiven through Christ, and since your salvation, you've been enabled to follow God's commands better through the power of the Holy Spirit. That leaves verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You could say it this way. You don't want to be a person who shows no mercy on the poor because if you show no mercy, you'll be judged without mercy. But who is James talking to? Is he talking to believers or is he talking to unsaved people? Now, if he were talking to unsaved people, this this verse would be very easy to interpret. Nasty, vicious, dangerous, harmful Unsaved people will come to the end of their life to find that at judgment day, they're rewarded for their hatefulness, and their time before the judgment seat will be painful. But it doesn't seem like James is talking to unbelievers. It seems like he's talking to believers. If you look back at verse one, James said, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, we have to try to understand how judgment will be without mercy for a believer who is not merciful. There's two ways that that could be true. These are, these are not in your, in your bulletin, but it could be true, first of all, that the discipline of God is painful in the life of the unmerciful believer. Or we don't have to review Hebrews chapter 12, because you know that every believer comes under the discipline of God. The discipline of God is meted out when believers need correction. But a believer who constantly disobeys, God should expect constant discipline. And when mild discipline doesn't work, God is likely to turn up the heat in that person's life. All discipline is painful, but don't invite more and more discipline into your life by continuing to disobey. So one way that a believer might invite the discipline of God in their their life is to be cruel and to be uncaring and to to be bullying and to be prejudiced and to be partial. God will not allow a a believer to go on being cruel and uncaring or bullying or or prejudice without discipline because God is not a negligent parent. God is not going to look the other way and ignore, pretend that he doesn't see your sin. He's going to disappoint you in order to bring you back into obedience to him. Now, the second way that this might happen in the life of the believer is in the matter of rewards for believers that may be withheld, for unmerciful believers. We're almost done but I want you to listen carefully to this scripture. 1 Corinthians 3.11 begins at verse 11. We read, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, so we're building up the kingdom of God, or someone might build on that foundation with wood, hay, and straw, Each one's work will become manifest for the day. We'll disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If that work anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So on Judgment Day, there will be some believers standing before Christ and all the works they, they did in life will be declared worthless. Now, maybe that believer spent 60 years as a Christian on earth. But when they stand before Jesus, sadly, he will tell them that their life was a vast waste of time. They've not earned any heavenly reward and and they're humiliated and they're embarrassed and they they feel a sense of loss and now it's too too late to change their way. And there they are standing in heaven empty-handed. When other believers are receiving rewards and they're rejoicing and they're they're celebrating, And, and some believers' celebration in heaven is going to be very muted because they have earned no reward. It's a scary thought. And sometimes for me, and I think when, when I uh, enter heaven, I, I hope I'm just not right behind someone like Scott Noxana Sobe, you know, that's going to point out just how little work I've, I've done in this life. And remember, once again, the Bible does not say there are no tears in heaven. The Bible says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 21 4. So maybe somebody says, Well, I'd really like to avoid standing in front of Jesus and having my life declared worthless. Great, that's fantastic. So do I. So here's what we do. We we study scripture with a and I to obeying it. We, we spend time in prayer. We love our neighbor as ourself. We, we are merciful to everyone. We love the rich and the poor. We're gracious to the young and the old, to the beautiful and the plain, to the, to the brilliant and to the simple, to the American and to the foreigner, to white and black, because mer- this mercy triumphs over judgment. The merciful believer will find the sting taken out of judgment. If you, if you truly obey the golden rule and love others as you, you love them, as you love yourself, you don't have to fear God's judgment. Truly love God and truly love others, you have nothing to fear on Judgment Day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way of speaking that James has that's so clear and so practical, and, and um, Father, he interacted with many, many, many believers in many churches, and Father, he knew the problems in the churches, and, and Father, we, we believe that this problem of partiality, it's still present. We ask, Father, that you would help us to love one another to love the easy to love and to also love those that are difficult to love. And, Father, we we pray that you, through your spirit, you would continue to enable us to become like Jesus Christ was um, on earth, where where he loved the the poor, He, he loved the downtrodden, And he also held out best hopes for those that were rich and and those that had position in society. We ask that you would be with us as we continue to worship this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.